All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. You're joined by Michaels 1 and 2 and Miles. We got both Vance and Yano out. And uh, I think we're also going to be joined by uh, Ron DeSantis. Uh, he's announcing his candidacy on the Bell Curve, Bell Curve pod. <laughs> Man's everywhere these days. I actually tuned into the spaces. I thought it wasn't. I didn't think it was bad, but the the media didn't have kind things to say about it. But I don't know. That is uh, definitely true. Yeah. That is a joke. Ron DeSantis will not be showing us. He will not be going on this project. <laughs> no, he will not. Um, well, guys, it's been a bit of a slow week in, in crypto because kind of our, our leading story here is actually AI related. So um, NVIDIA had maybe one of the largest, you know, relative and absolute percent moves in a stock I've, I've ever seen. Um, so... They announced earnings yesterday and the stock was up almost 30% overnight. Um, basically, an, an enormous revenue beat kind of on the back of anticipated demand from AI. So, I don't know. I mean, Michael, I feel like this is a little bit more of, of your wheelhouse here, but I'd be I'd be like very curious what your sort of takeaways were. I, I really think it's as simple as you can kind of assume. They had a revenue beat. They had a guidance beat. A lot of the conversation that they had after on the earnings call was really around artificial intelligence and where they see these changes stemming from, which is AI. And so frankly, I, I think you know the the basic understanding here is NVIDIA, the stock itself, is broadly looked at now as a way to invest in AI where you have the downside potential of a core business being able to subsidize downside risk with the upside potential of AI really kind of taking off. And, you know, historically we've looked at NVIDIA in particular and NVIDIA actually is featured in a number of different blockchain ETFs because of the GPUs that they create, which are the core components of any sort of mining operation. Um, and so NVIDIA has been looked at historically as a way to get exposure to industries where you can't direct invest or you can't directly invest through a stock. Uh, or you don't want to have the specific risk of a stock that is only focused on that space. And you know, Web3 crypto in the 2017, 2018, 2019 era was that opportunity for NVIDIA. And it looks like you know people are taking that same playbook and, and potentially running it back here with AI. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. And you know, one thing that we were talking about before we started recording is, are they taking the exact same components that they've been selling, you know, the GPUs that would go into gaming rigs or be used on kind of very high-speed computers uh, and leveraging those for AI, or are they going to start building their own AI-specific components? Um, you know, if they're able to move in the direction, they, they never built specific components for crypto mining, but if they move in the direction of having uh, specific components that are that are dedicated for AI, you know, this, this could be, you know, a, a great opportunity for people to, you know, potentially get exposure to it. Uh, but will be interesting to see how that plays out. So I'm just reading, uh, you know, sort of a couple of the highlights from their notes from from their earnings release. And, you know, 
they they really leaned into the whole adoption of AI, right? They they're really positioning themselves to Wall Street as being in the center of the adoption of AI based tools. Um, these are you know I'm just reading directly from the Wall Street Journal article here, but the adoption of ChatGPT is already translating into a surge in orders of chips that is quote you know almost unimaginable. Uh, that's coming from Susquehanna. And uh, basically, you know, people are saying that this is a new gold rush and this is a picks and shovels business and investors love picks and shovels for sure. Um, I would say like NVIDIA is a great company for sure. Uh, I think probably some mini AI bubble post chat GBT was always, um, always inevitable. I think there was always going to be a lot of uh, in the strong investor sentiment here. I, I, you know, obviously I'm not an analyst and I haven't you know, deeply studied NVIDIA's business, but I do think I've been thinking for some time that there was going to be a little bit of an overreaction to AI in general. So I don't, this is kind of the inverse of Chegg, which you saw a couple of weeks ago, but Chegg, they mentioned AI in their earnings call in a negative way and the stock fell 30%. And this is NVIDIA, you know, wrapping their positive earnings around AI and surprise, surprise, it's up 30%. And, you know, we were talking about before on this call, NVIDIA is not a small company. NVIDIA now, their market cap sits just under a trillion dollars. Um, you know, I don't know how much more room they really have to run here. They've already doubled so far this year. So they're on they're on a tear uh, and they've got a 215 price to earnings ratio. So I think this is, you know, people are extremely bullish and they might be a great company. But I would also say, you know, you're in a rarefied air at over a trillion dollar market cap. So that's that's the only thing that I might point out there. Two two things to add there, just to piggyback, you know, a twenty five, I think it's twenty five percent up today, uh, but a twenty five percent increase on that size of an asset, they literally added an entire Ethereum in twenty four hours, and you know that that size of movement is not you know uncommon for obviously a crypto asset or a smaller medium sized equity company, but adding that amount of size to this large of a corporation um, is a is a real noticeable move um and and yeah i think broadly um it'll be interesting to see what happens with ai kind of where it where it trends over the next six months a lot of the people that are very closely you know entrenched in the industry like the adam d'angelo's of Quora, uh obviously the the sam altman's of the world uh, you know a lot of what they talk about is that this isn't going to be sort of a flash in the pan type effect and that every single week every month Recorder, there's going to be new improvements, new advancements, new features, new products that come out. If that trend can continue, I think you know you're going to see a sustained you know cycle here. Um, but I agree, it, there is a, a lot of potential here that this is something that slows down at least in the intermediate and isn't something where you know meets up to expectations or demand as fast as everybody expects it will. And it's also just the you know it's the easiest, most accessible way to bet on AI right now, right? That does not require you to be you know a participant of private markets and even if you were it doesn't require you to pick you know the winners higher up in the stack right um so when you combine you know those dynamics with extremely like hot investment area anyways plus a fundamental story behind you know the investment i think you get a move of this size um and it'll be interesting to see if some of you know this capital eventually does trickle into more of like the application winners um, at, at some point, like, you know, similar in the crypto markets where you, you bet on, you know, the laziest possible version of the thesis to begin with. And then eventually they'll take those profits and then find, you know, 
altcoins or smaller projects to invest in, right? Uh, you can see a, a parallel situation playing out here. Yeah. Just just because we occasionally discuss crypto on this macro and AI podcast, <laughs> just to draw a parallel. There is, I was, I was listening to the All In podcast, one of their guys, F. Friedberg, talking about the the trouble of regulating something like AI because, um, you know, Sam Altman already got hauled up in front of Congress and had to answer a bunch of questions. And, you know, the testimony that he gave was pretty interesting. It, I think there were a couple of different possible interpretations. He very much so was on the pro-regulatory camp. And maybe you could interpret that as being an incumbent pulling up the ladder behind you. The slightly more charitable interpretation of that is, hey, this is a really hard thing to regulate. And I do think one of the there's a there's a comparison between regulating crypto and regulating something like AI. These these models are actually something that can be run with relatively small amounts of computation kind of on the fringe. And, you know, we, our algorithms are already so incorporated into our world and the technology that we use that it does when you actually get down to brass tacks, and you try to write legislation around this. It's very difficult to regulate something like this in, in a sort of similar way that it is to regulate something like crypto as well. And the, the whole regulatory apparatus is sort of based around, you know, you 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 regulate these large intermediary um, sort of entities, these institutions, and both AI and crypto just fly directly in the face of that. So I do think there are going to be some interesting, there's just a parallel to draw between the challenges regulating AI and crypto, I think. So I was I was literally thinking about this, not in, in relation to the, to the all-in podcast, I haven't listened to that one, but I, I do think... Um, there's some really interesting corollaries between what Sam was talking about as to, and, and I totally agree. I don't think he's like pulling up the ladder behind him. I think that he's, he's basically trying to curry favor with politicians to say, Hey, yeah, sure. It, regulate us. Absolutely. And maybe we're the ones that gets the license. Maybe we're not the one that gets the license and there is no licensing program. But, you know, as soon as this, this technology, you know, to your point, and, and we've seen this with a number of uh, investment opportunities that we've been looking at of just disintermediating, decentralizing the process of taking a model, training the model, using the model, and and having people pay for it in a completely decentralized network path. Uh, you know, this stuff is going to move to the edges very, very rapidly. In the exact same way, and and kind of what we were thinking about internally at Framework was in the exact same way as being a validator node in proof of stake network has moved to the edges of the network. You can be an at-home staker with a small computer, a small computing device, and be one of the nodes that's participating in the Ethereum network, you know, if you have 32E. But I think that same thing will happen. Right now, it's not the case where, you know, OpenAI has ChatGPT and that's a closed source model. Google has Bard. I think there's Llama is open source, but all of these are kind of varying degrees of open source, closed source, but really the training aspect is something that happens at the core kind of compute engines that you would expect, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Microsofts of the world, open AI now. But as this stuff moves to the edges, you're not going to be able to put the genie back in the bottle. And I think Sam knows that. And in the exact same way that crypto, you know, there's been so many attempts to try and say, oh, validators now fall under this regulatory regime. It's like, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. Like there's too many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of node operators that are running software on their own private devices. And that's not going to be something that you can just go back and say, okay, let's let's take that back. So I, I do think that, you know, the corollary that we were thinking about is running the training or running the models themselves at the edges with validating proof of stake networks or or proof of work networks as well. But 
you know, validating networks or mining networks, you know, that's just something that I think is going to be at the edges permanently. I think maybe the one interesting difference here, and I'm not sure how it's going to play off is that play out is that like, you know, I, my limited understanding is that, you know, open source in AI is a little bit different than say open source on the crypto side, because the source code can be open source, but like the, the neural net weights, the NMWs are, are right. right. Um, and so I think that, you know, they need to come around some standards for licensing on, on that side as well. Um, otherwise you don't really know what's getting, you know, going into this model. Um, even if the source code itself is completely open source. I would imagine that the training of, you know, the, the models that exist right now is in the, you know, tens to potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's at a, it, it's at a price point that's not re, uh, attainable for any individual at home, uh, trainer. Um, but you can assume over the, you know, the, the increases in efficiency and, and potentially decreases in cost. Therefore, you know, you, and, and also not the very open, um, and uh, large uh, surface area models that we've seen today. But if you go after very specific models that are trained on very specific problems, I would imagine that cost goes down quite a bit. Um, that That's kind of what I'm thinking about. So I want to transition, Michael. I'm going to ask you in a in a minute about just like the the state of the sort of private markets and, and sort of cap raising crypto, which seems about as apathetic as, as I've ever seen it. Um, I, it. I think it is just to maybe bookend the discussion of AI. I did see a headline uh, from the block that paradigm is actually broadening its crypto only focus to areas, including AI, uh, you know, following along the trend of several entrepreneurs who recently have probably dropped out of crypto and are focusing on something AI related. So I just kind of interesting. They, there's, it was a good article. They did some, some digging. They basically changed, uh, it's not confirmed obviously, but the, but paradigm did change some some uh, language on their website back on May 3rd, according to the Wayback Machine, uh, basically to scrub, you know, discussions of crypto or investing in Web3 protocols to being a research driven technology investment firm. So I think the idea is not that they're like pulling out of crypto, but they certainly are broadening their approach uh, or their, you know, their sort of investment strategy. Curious what you think, man. Yeah. On, on that particular subject, and you know, this happened like 20 minutes before we hopped on. So I don't have too much context other than what you just said. Um, I, I would say, you know, there's a couple of things going on right now. Um, the first is with any, with any venture fund or investment fund, your fund size and your fund structure dictates your entire business model, your entire investment strategy. And so if, you know, our, our most recent fund that we raised almost a year ago or a little over a year ago was a $400 million fund. I think what was reported on Paradigm uh, with their most recent fund was a two and a half billion dollar fund. And there's a couple of ways that you can look at that. You can say, okay, um, you know, the investors that are putting money into that fund, you know, generally have the same expectations, which is, you know, historically you want to have over a three X to be successful, to be really successful between a five and a 10 X fund. Anything over that is like uber successful. Um, and so to get to, you know, a three X net distribution, means that you have to return assets in excess of $7.5 billion, which doesn't even factor in the fees that they will charge, whether it be management or performance fees. So you're probably looking at somewhere between eight and a half, nine and a half billion dollars of, of gross returns to be able to get to that 3x return fund. And that's just really hard, I think. And not just in like the markets that we've seen historically over the last three years, like that, that would be hard as well, but it's even harder 
especially with what we've seen in the last 12 months. And so, you know, just doing a little bit of the fun math, you kind of sit back and think, okay, well, you know, how do we, how do we go after opportunities where we can justifiably underwrite these investments to say they have the potential of returning 1x the fund or 0.5x the fund? And um, the other, the other aspect here too is, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure the size of their investment team or the size of their entire team. Each investment uh, that you make isn't just like a, okay, we made the investment and, you know, give us a call when, when you want to return capital. It's you are working at least the way that we do it hand in glove with the portfolio companies that you bring in with the founding teams that you bring, you know, into the fold. And, you know, that's so much of the value add that we have, but also, you know, I think they think of it the same way. And that's, that's really kind of how you get to, you know, not only just like pick the right winners, but also help make them the best that they can be. Um, and, and that dictates success as well. And so, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and there's only so many people that you can have on the team that if you're looking at something that's, you know, 10 times, uh, or, or six, six to eight times larger, um, you know, it just means that you're going to have six to eight times more people maybe. Um, so I, it, the, 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 the fun math starts to stretch a little bit. Um, and, uh, and that's just not even counting, you know, the size of prize potential of what crypto has shown us in the last 12 months. So not, not frankly, not surprised. Um, I would say though, that like the best time to do that probably was like two years ago. Uh, it does feel as we just talked about, we're hitting sort of a fever pitch in AI maybe, and maybe this is just like the start, who knows? Uh, and it's just going to continue upwards. Um, but you know, there is potential that this is the fever pitch and by switching strategies, um, you do get the question of like, are you really bought into this industry? Um, or are you just kind of looking at this, uh, as, as an industry that you cover and the advantage of us, you know, framework being a web three only fund versus any other generalist venture firm that we would potentially compete with is we, we know the space way better than they do because we live and breathe this 24 seven. And that's all that we think about and do. Um, so I, I find it hard to think that someone who is more generalist in nature is going to be as competitive in one specific discipline versus, you know, multiple at the same time. What I found myself thinking about when I was listening to that description, Michael, is like, there were a couple, there are some mistakes that got made in, in crypto generally is like, you don't want to make the mistake of getting too greedy. And that applies maybe to like that a temptation, right? To accumulate management fees, I'm sure is probably pretty high, right? But you don't want to do that as a VC. You don't want to do it as a founder in terms of valuation. Like there are some horror stories, not horror, but there are some cautionary tales that frankly are playing out right now in this industry of, yeah, it sounds great when you get a huge valuation as a founder, but like you better make sure that you don't need to raise capital at a lower valuation or something like that, because then your life is going to be hell. Same thing down to if you're an employee and look. There were some crazy salaries that were thrown around in crypto the last couple of years. And you might have thought that was a great move. But when things turn around, guess what? Comp structure is one of the first things that gets analyzed. And if you are an, you know, a gigantic outlier, like, guess what? You're just vulnerable. So there, it, there obviously is like, look, you got to push for things and try to, you know, a, you know, advocate for yourself, get more salary, get a higher valuation, raise a big fund. But you can do too much. I would say one of the biggest things that has been happening or starting to happen in the venture industry broadly uh, is you're not starting to see um, subsequent funds raised at smaller size. But I think that that's going to happen in the next 18 months. The first one that we saw so far was Founders Fund. And I think that they went, they were, they were targeting a $2 billion fundraise for, I think, their ninth fund. I, I can't remember. These details might be 
um, slightly off, but um, instead of doing a $2 billion raise, they decided to do a $1 billion raise and say that that's fund number nine. And then their 10th fund will be another fund, another $1 billion fund. So they, they effectively cut their fund size in half by doing that. Um, and not to say that the $2 billion in commitment isn't going to be committed. It's just going to be called and actually utilized and invested at different periods of time. And, and think about it in the way that you just talked about it, Mike. So, you know, typically you have a 2% management fee. If you have a $2.5 billion fund, that means that you're taking in $50 million a year in just fees. And that goes towards keeping the lights on, hiring the staff, you know, paying for office space, travel, all things that go with the process of operating a firm. And, you know, if you increase the size of your firm because you think that you're going to have, and you know, it's a recurring revenue model. You, you have that 2%. Uh, usually it's for the first five to seven years of the fund life cycle. When you raise your subsequent fund, maybe it drops down a bit, but you've got a recurring revenue model where you can keep everybody employed and on staff of the firm for a fairly long period of time. But what it does require is that you raise the same amount or more the next time. And it's a really difficult process to go through cuts on an investment firm side, because as soon as that starts happening, it's sort of a question of like, well, what's wrong? And then that reputational potential hit gets out. So, you know, I, I do kind of see this as an effort to expand into an adjacent industry that is obviously, you know, doing very well right now with, with, with a hype cycle happening and potentially, you know, they can, they can pull it off to expand, but I, I don't know if, um, you know, next time they were to come to market to fundraise, whether or not 2.5 would be you know justifiable for a crypto only fund. Uh, and so you kind of have, you know, one of those two paths that you can choose. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, maybe this is kind of more transitioning to, you know, where we'll talk about next, just the general market thoughts, but you know, you have these mega funds raised at the top of the cycle. Um, and now they just, you know, are looking for ways to deploy those funds. Um, and their options are, you know, paying up at a much higher price to these very crowded consensus bets. Um, you know, Michael, you probably see it too, but like the hottest, larger, you know, I would say like, you know, B series, even A series deals are still getting priced up to, you know, kind of peak cycle multiples. Um, and, or you could look to the liquid market, right? So looking for like undervalued liquid tokens, um, that you can that actually have some liquidity, um, you know, and then after that, it becomes a question of okay, do, do we expand the mandate? Um, and I think the, the the ultra mega funds that have the you know ability to go get those you know resources in house that can allow them to be value add in other you know non Web three um, sectors could do that, but you know it's very very limited, um, and you're obviously kind of losing some focus. So as it relates to fund size, I think uh, it, first thing I thought of was you know benchmark strategy of just having a winning formula with with a fund size and an investment strategy and just running that back um again and again with the same size team essentially um and it's one of those things you know to your point mike like in terms of being greedy or or just sticking to what you do best i think that that's where you see that kind of shine through totally agree with that greed is just it's got to be the number one thing that just takes people down crypto it's it is tough, you know. The incentives are right there, and you just got to have a somewhat longer term mindset on it. Because just look at the people that got carted out this last cycle in crypto. Yeah. 
a lot of them. Yeah. yeah, but and Miles on that on that point in particular, there's a great book called E Boys, which is on the starting and sort of the the growth of Benchmark. And they had the exact same thing happen where in the you know ninety eight, I think they started, raised a small fund, then raised maybe like a three hundred or four hundred million dollar fund. And then they ballooned into like an Israel fund, a Europe fund, and maybe even an Asia fund. Like AUM massively ballooned, totally cratered in in the dot com crash, and they had to take like three to four years to rebuild themselves to get back to this model. And they decided never again. You know, we're always going to stick to four fifty, and that's it. Um, so th- there's a lot of interesting storylines that you can see with the progression of these different firms from previous generations. I think we're going to see a lot of that stuff play out for Web3 funds as well. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah. Could you, uh, you know, I would love to get uh, sort of a sentiment gauge on, I was, I was actually at a dinner with with some VCs this week and kind of echoed actually, Miles, what you were just describing there, which is basically overall there's way less opportunities, um, but the good ones are kind of like almost immediately, right? Everyone kind of swoops in and bids the deal up and then it gets closed. Um, so I guess the good news in there is that, you know, if you're a skilled founder, maybe with a track record or a great idea or whatever, you can probably still get your idea funded, but it does look like overall there's been a, a barbelling in terms of, uh, funding. And then there are just less projects overall. I would, uh, I'd be curious if that kind of lines up with both of your perceptions as well. Well, hundred percent. Um, you know, I think it's just, it's, it's tough out there and, and there's only, there's, there's still like, you know, you're seeing much more reasonable valuations at the, for the first check in a lot of times these days. But, you know, when you have a billion dollar fund, you don't have the time or resources to write, you know, 50 to a hundred of those, you know, seed checks, because they all take a lot of time to develop those relationships and to win the deals. Right. Um, and then, so you're just kind of hoping that some of your previous funds, uh, investments have large follow on rounds where you already have, you know, pro out a share at a decent price, um, or you're, you know, forced to take much higher prices and sacrifice your returns on that. Um, which is okay if you're a huge fund, but that also, you know, prices out a lot of these players that are, um, you know, would not be willing to take those prices on for, because it's a much larger chunk of their fund size. So to- totally agree. The, the the first time fundraisers, so whether this is like a seed or a pre-seed or, or sometimes even, you know, it might be an A-size investment round, the the reasonable expectations on, you know, valuation, on the amount raised, on, you know, milestone-based um, uh, agreement for the next fundraise and, and very clear ideas around, um, you know, what they need now versus what they're going to need in the future it feels like that is a very kind of sober and realistic perspective that we haven't seen in that area of the venture market for the last two years. I would say maybe even three actually, but uh, I would say anyone who is coming back who hasn't been to market to fundraise in the last 14 months is not seeing success and is not seeing, um, you know, frankly, what they're ready for, what they want. And that's, I'd say the hardest part of the market where expectations on the you know fifty million dollar seed round that they did last time, you know now it's it's going to be a twenty five, you know because there hasn't been enough progress, so there hasn't been enough you know movement or change, or, or frankly like the market is just you know not there, um, and so I think that is probably the hardest subset of the market right now, um, and then there are some deals happening, although I would condition to to say that 
a lot of the like series B plus deals that have been announced recently were actually funded like six, nine, 12 months ago. And, and so it, it is sort of like a, a misnomer right now to have the expectation that like, you know, some of these massive multi-hundred million dollar deals were done recently. It's like, well, no, those deals were negotiated in March of 2022 and then funded in May of 2022 or April of 2022. And then, you know, now they're just getting around to the announcement. Um, so I, I, there, there is some misdirection on that, I would say. Um, but really anything that's B plus right now is not happening. And, you know, if these are companies, if these are protocols, whatever they may be, um, really like the benchmark for success at this point is how much money are you making if you're a company and it's anywhere from like a 20 to 35 X ARR multiple for where you currently are. So if you are making on average, you know, as of May 25th, 2023, your average annual run rate is a million dollars. Your valuation is somewhere in the like 25 to $35 million range. And that's, that's kind of how, you know, most of these companies that are selling, you know, services are being valued if there are protocols and the potential for, you know, protocols to become layer twos or, you know, base layers. Um, and you're going after a decentralized network, that valuation could change. Um, but you have to have a justifiable way of getting there and a justifiable reason for existing. Um, and yeah, I think the other aspect here, which is also extremely difficult is a lot of the, the products and categories that were started in 2021 and early 22, frankly, the, the market has just moved away from them. And that is another kind of subset. And, and we have a couple of portfolio companies that are going through this process right now of just, you know, the big pivot and, um, you know, moving away from the concept that they were thinking about into something, you know, that now may have a chance of working. Whereas, you know, everybody's in agreement, what you were previously building is not going to go work, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, so there, there is kind of a lot of conversations that are ha being had around that as well. So you're saying you're not bullish on metaverse land, basically? That <laughs> wasn't one of them. I don't know if we ever made any investments in metaverse land, but no, I'm not. <laughs> uh, who knows? Maybe that'll probably work next cycle. But yeah, I they're they're definitely. I mean, that's one of the. Um, I did, I do think one of the cooler things you get. I've sort of gone down this rabbit hole on. I'm a big fan of listening to old podcasts. I love to sort of get a sense of uh, the arguments that people are making in different periods of time. And you can go back and there are these chains that didn't necessarily work or sort of these projects that I have in my head where it's like, oh, yeah, that like wasn't a great project. But it's like, oh, the founder of this person who was working at this old project that didn't work is now the founder of Curve or something like that. And there are actually lots of examples like that in crypto where. You know, maybe a chain like Kanto would be a good example of one that like may or may not deserve its valuation. But there are some kind of cool innovations that happen there that might work in Kanto or they might get copied on another chain. So I do think it's one of the cool things about crypto. Maybe I would love to. This is kind of a meaty topic here. So um, I want to make sure we've got enough time to talk about it. But Vitalik wrote a piece this week that I think got a lot of people talking, which the title of it was Don't Overload Ethereum's Consensus. And the basic point of the chain was highlighting the importance of Ethereum uh, to basically be able to uh, come to consensus and the sort of dangers of co-opting Ethereum's either validator set or perhaps more dangerously social consensus for other aims. So the three sort of examples uh, that he gave here are kind of like the ultimate oracle, right? So that would be something where 
uh, basically incorporating the concept of an oracle into e-validators, as an example. Uh, the other two examples that he gave were restaking. Um, so basically being able to hypothecate your stake uh, and use it to secure another protocol. That's sort of the eigenlayer thing. Or uh, L1-driven recovery of L2 projects. So the idea being, if there was some sort of, like, let's just f- fast forward two, three years into the future and say something like, Arbitrum or Optimism had $20 billion of TBL locked up there, and there was some catastrophic hack or bug or code failure, and all of that TBL got vaporized, um, would there be political pressure to roll back Ethereum the chain to recover users' funds? And, you know, he goes into a whole bunch of different, more benign examples, basically, but that that's the idea that he was trying to warn against. And there's been some pretty lively debate off of off of this. I don't know where you guys want to start, or maybe we could just start with your kind of high-level reactions to the piece. Yeah, um, yeah. I think the, the two buckets that I reacted to the most were kind of the, the general thoughts on the restaking component, um, and also what I kind of took away as, you know, things that are too big to fail within Ethereum, um, and whether it's a layer two or something like Lido or, or even USDC, you know, like what could actually be so impactful that, Ethereum would would hard fork, um, and then that kind of gets into, you know, well, which of these things should Ethereum may, may maybe consider built enshrining into the protocol so that you know it's it's less of a external dependency that they're worried about and something that they would have more control over. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if there's a one area you want to start maybe on the the eigenlayer risks. Um, if we have some thoughts there, yeah, I mean. I don't think it's any surprise or um, it's definitely not subtle that this is, uh, you know, a direct shot at Eigenlayer. Um, I think Eigenlayer is, you know, set to uh, at least let, uh, at least launch their test nets. Um, I think fairly soon for their data availability network. Um, and Trirom, the founder of Eigenlayer, you know, had, a, had a post afterwards talking about this. I, I do think that, you know, like my visual takeaway here is, um, where we got in trouble before, Mike, we literally been talking about this is like great takes over and what happens next. And this is, this is a, a situation where, you know, restaking, I think will have in, in asymmetric understanding of the risk versus reward potential where risk is actually much higher relative to the, to the incremental reward that you could be earning. Um, and we have yet to see what the networks are that will be leveraging the solution of item layer or any restaking solution in general. Um, I would imagine that, uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be a high highest risk to begin with, but it, it'll still also be a lot of additional risk. And, you know, the slashing element isn't just like a, um, you lose part of your rewards. It's really like you lose your capital at stake in, in a way that, you know, is very, very, you know, real. And, and I'm not sure that most people who will want the incremental five to seven to 8% will quite understand that. So that that's kind of where I draw most of the risk with restaking in general. We just have yet to see what that looks like. The part that I thought was the most interesting is the social layer. <laughs> Thinking about, you know, these things get too big to fail and and therefore we just roll it back and you know, that's like the the bailout moment that we live through again. I just don't ever see that happening, you know, as a potential option going forward. Um if the industry's too big, we're too established. Um, even if something as big as like an Arbitrum, you know, which is talked about in the article, were were to you know get hurt with something with some malicious attack, 
um, you know, the amount of value that's that's in there, which is about ten billion dollars currently, that's you know small in comparison to the rest of the the entire ecosystem. Um, and you know, maybe it gets to be large enough to where it really matters and it's an existential threat. But I don't, I don't even think Arbitrum is close to that right now. Um, so, I think he's really digging into something interesting here because I have actually. Uh, Miles, you and I have been actually asking ourselves I've actually a very similar question the last couple of weeks um, of, of what would happen something in the event like there was a yeah like a hack on a big L2 and he Vitalik actually uses the example of you know if if there was a consensus that if there were to be a hack on a large L2 the ETH main chain would be rolled back versus a much smaller L2 then it wouldn't that creates a lot of the same moral hazard that frankly has been highlighted in the banking system for the last couple of months um the exact same thing right then everyone's going to deposit at jp morgan instead of a regional bank and not everyone has the same footing i do think however the counterpoint to that is eth's explicit roadmap is to move people and tvl and activity up to the layer layer twos roll-ups and if there isn't some that's almost like the analogy that i think of in my head is kind of like a regulator or or government kind of prodding and saying, this is what we want you to do. I think to do that and then not give guarantees about moving funds and um, activity up, up to the, up to the roll up layer, then probably the result is that TVL and activity is going to be stickier on main chain than you might think. And the roll ups aren't going to get the level of adoption that you would think. And this might be a little unpopular, but I think in order for rollups to get the level of adoption that they're going to get, I think, I think, I don't know. I don't want to say it because I could be totally wrong about this, but yeah, I, I kind of think you, it is hard for me to imagine people doing that without some sort of guarantee. I think it might have been Hayden that, that tweeted this this week, but I think there's like some interesting choices Ethereum could consider in terms of like enshrining standards, like ways of doing things at the L2 level. So whether it's like, a, you know, a proving standard um, or something else so that at least, you know, the risks are, are somewhat controlled because everybody, you know, some of these main like attack vectors would be kind of enshrined at the L1 level um, so that everybody would follow them. And there would be, you know, all these like, you know, all the eyes that could be looking at this would be looking at the same standard. Um, I think that that's, that's something that could be an interesting middle ground there. Um, and yeah, I, I do think on the, the restaking component will, will be very interesting because I think, so first of all, you know, I, I get layers governance, uh, which will be a, a committee to begin with will control you know which lsds uh or lsts we're calling them now are whitelisted uh for for restaking um and which which projects like rollups like oracles like bridges can integrate um on the other side um for to be eligible for restaking um and then there's a third component in that if there is a slashing event this council will like with human eyes actually review what um happened and if it's deemed to be you know unfair uh then they will basically be able to veto the slash um and what's interesting about you know it connects to kind of to to alex piece is that you know that's why he's stressing that any of the jobs that are being economically secured by restaked ETH 
should be extremely quantifiable and straightforward and not subjective to this, you know, needing to go to this like council of elders, uh, which, which just in general doesn't feel like it's in the spirit of, of what we're trying to do here. Right. Uh, longer term. That, that's exactly, I mean, that's exactly the point that I, I'm a better articulated way of saying what I was trying to say, which is the fact that you just even have the council that you go to as in, as uh, a point of standard or a point of infrastructure suggests that there's going to be a fair number of these situations that arise. And it, it calls into question kind of whether or not this is even, you know, worth it. Right. Um, but not, not saying this, not saying the council itself, but, but just like the, that, that's exactly what Vitalik is saying, right? Is that the social consensus layer is built around arbitrating whether or not these things are real or should happen. And, you know, you've got human society and on one end, is this fair? Or is this not? Is there a standard for that? You know, it has to be quantifiable. Um, whereas if that existed, you know, imagine if that existed at the early onset of Ethereum and for all the different bugs or issues that people ran into, there was, it was a, there's a council that existed to decide whether or not we were going to roll back the chain. You know, there'd be a thousand classics at this point. <laughs> Right, right, exactly, and and I guess the other the other component here is that even if eigenlayer is you know you could even if they were run as like an extension of the Ethereum Foundation in the spirit of what the Ethereum Foundation would do themselves, uh, right? So doing this as responsibly as possible, um, you do face the risk of you know a, a fork coming along that just you know decides to, you know, maybe be a little bit more relaxed about some of these things in, in order to, you know, go after some sort of, uh, some, some, you know, middleware that wants to juice yields even further or, or, you know, do lots of different things. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, it's kind of a, it's going to be very interesting to see how it all plays out and not to mention, by the way, the people, the protocols that are building on top of Eigenlayer on the other side that say, okay, you've taken your restaked you know you're taking your lsd and you've restaked it now let's you know make a derivative of your restaked lsd um and create like a tranche index of good stuff. miles sorry would you mind actually just i'm um, because eigenlayer is one of those things that i'm sure people know what it is at a high level but could you just give an overview yeah, sure. of what i but restaking the primitive actually is and you had those three models we were just talking on the phone last night could you just go through those three different models actually for how it could work just kind of run through the user flow as as fast as i can or, or i guess maybe we'll start with who who is eigenlayer's customers they are you know protocols like rollups like oracles like bridges that today are you know either centralized in the way that they do critical functions um or or you know maybe secured by their own like governance token and the idea is these could be improved a lot um, and, and there is a market for this of people that would, you know, choose to, uh, restake their ETH so that they could then be economically secured by an asset like ETH, which is a huge market cap. It's less volatile. And so you wouldn't have, you know, the security budgets of these protocols going, you know, being as volatile as the tokens themselves or, you know, controlled by a central party. So that's the demand side. Now the supply side can look like a lot of different ways, but from the perspective of a user, let's say I hold Steeth um, and I want to get additional yield on that Steeth. Well, I can then take it and look at a number of opportunities of all these protocols on the other side that have opted in and say I can go, you know, restake to an eigenlayer operator 
that is running, you know, the sequencer for Arbitrum for 10% extra yield, or I can restake to, you know, the bridge operator role of like wormhole, right. For maybe an additional 15%, but it's more risky. Um, and so I will basically then take my, you know, LSD, choose which protocol I want to restake or rehypothecate that capital to. Um, and now I'm getting basically the yield of Ethereum L1 plus the yield of whatever, you know, the protocol is offering, which I restaked to. Um, but I take on double the slashing risks. So if I delegate to an eigenlayer operator who is running a sequencer for Arbitrum, and they do something malicious and it's provable um, and they get slashed, you know, that's my collateral being slashed, right? And it gets slashed in both places because I've given basically, you know, the eigenlayer contract, the ability to withdraw my stake and, and slash it essentially. Um, and so the problem is, it, you know, this, this is good. Um, you, you can do more with your capital. Yes. Um, and, and these protocols were hopefully more secure than they would be or more decentralized than they would be or, or both um, that are using it. But I guess my point on the other side is if I take my liquid staked, you know, ETH and restake it, um, it's non-fungible anymore. But that doesn't stop a third-party protocol from coming in and allowing me to create a derivative, you know, or a token that represents my restaked ETH. Um, and so you could then see a uh, all of the kind of risks that people have talked about with with liquid staking, you know, kind of being exacerbated or compounded by adding, you know, another layer of yield. Yeah, and to give to give um, one of the other interesting parts about Eigenlayer is that it enables different sort of risk and yield profiles. So let's say, um, just in this example, let's say you had Steeth and you wanted to get a little bit of extra yield, deposit that at. Uh, you you could basically you could imagine a world where there are certain ETH validators that maybe only do sort of more safe things, right? Like maybe they only run a, a sequencer for something like Arbitrum or Optimism. That's relatively safe. So probably the yield on that would be a little bit lower. Then you could imagine a world where some of the validators do much more risky things, right? They start uh, rehypothecating their stake to very uh, sort of unknown chains um, that have much higher APRs, but they pay in the native token. And so you could imagine a sort of a risk curve uh, being built in terms of in terms of ETH. The problem is, you know, one of the big problems of, of liquid staking in general is sort of a principal agent problem where you as the, the principal, the holder of ETH and the delegator, there's an information asymmetry, right, between even just like how node operations work for something like Lido. But then if you layer on this additional, you know, sort of this, this additional layer of risk, right, which is I don't know how the eigenlayer sort of trusted middleware works. And I let alone, I don't know how this other chain that they're securing is. All I know is the yield that I'm getting. It's just not particular. It just is worrisome. And really what, what Eigenlayer is, if you think about it, we started with one sort of bearer asset like ETH. Then you have Steeth, which is sort of another claim on that asset. And then you have another claim of a claim. You know, in, in my opinion, I think this is a way to introduce leverage into the system. That's what this looks like to me. More claims on one underlying asset. And just just to further that point, I agree with the leverage analogy. Um you know, and I agree with a with a fully efficient and and uh, fully developed market. Maybe you've got you know some components of a sequencer that's running on Optimism or Arbitrum, um, but that's not going to be the case from the from the outset. And so I think you also are going to have a bit of a selection bias as to which protocols are using this service to begin with. 
versus yeah. which ones are going to be using the service eventually. And you're going to have sort of, you know, in the analogy, um, you know, the the lower, the the higher yielding, um, lower well-established uh, protocols as the first entrance into the market because they don't necessarily have a governance token that's, you know, traded and, you know, liquid and available uh, for all as you would have with the Arbitrums and the, and the optimisms of the world. Um, and it's going to be a lot easier for them to get started with a liquid, with a uh, eigenlayer, you know, staking solution versus something that they've already built up over the last few years. So it's really only, I think, or not only, but it's largely going to be net new opportunities to begin with or these, these double staking, these leverage staking opportunities. Um, and maybe they've got some partnerships uh, where where they're going to announce, but, uh, but you know, we'll see. My guess is it's going to start with a bunch of new, which means that the risk is going to be that much higher uh, to begin with. So that I think is, a, is a, a major component as well, where, you know, the potential for issues with earlier stage protocols is that much higher than something that's been on chain for years. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, actually. I, I didn't think about that in that way. Um, and that it has like an adverse selection on the, on the demand side. Um, I definitely thought about that from the perspective of liquid staking protocols that are trying to become more competitive with each other. And they just decide that, you know, their validator set, they're all going to go do, you know, a, a, another job too. Um, right. So that they can get yields in Lido. Um, yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's interesting. I actually thought about it from the standpoint of, you know, this was, if you think about like the distribution schedule, the emission schedule of say o- OP, right? Um, they've got a huge bucket for liquidity mining incentives and all these incentives to come, you know, use apps on optimism. They did not budget out a cost for decentralizing their sequencer and what they would necessarily need to pay eigenlayer operators. Um, but you know that's something you see with app chains like standard right you have a bucket that you're paying your validators because they're securing your your chain so you know it'll be interesting to see about this distribution like what these you know the pie charts look like of say like starknet or or another um zk sync that wants to be you know use eigenlayer from day one um and they'll say okay we got this for liquidity incentives but we need to look at this for for to pay these costs because it you know, just using a sequencer revenue share is not going to be enough yield to make it worth it for anybody. Right. Um, well, and, and I think, and yeah, and that, that's definitely what I was also going to say uh, that you just peaked um, in my, in my head, where does this yield come from? Is it going to be yield that is generated by transaction revenue flowing through this protocol from day one, or is it going to be yield that's denominated in the native token that they're used to distribute to anyone who's staking or sequencing in this network. Obviously, it's going to be the, the latter. The latter. And so, you know, you know the the example here is like, oh, yeah, the yield may be very high, but that is token-denominated yield, and that's inflationary token-denominated yield even more so. Uh, so, you know, th- you know, there are fundamental risks with, with a lot of this, and I, I really hope that it can work and it, it becomes a, a mainstay and it's very successful and um, but I, I do think that the initial bootstrapping is going to be very difficult to break through. Here's a, just to present the counterpoint here, because I think we've all been pretty, um, you know, good at citing the risks of something like Eigenlayer. I do think there's sort of an inevitability that people are going to do what they're going to do. And what I mean by that is if you look at something like the decision to 
do um, you know, not have delegated proof of stake in something like Ethereum. The reason why that wasn't implemented in the beginning was because they didn't want 150 validators with all the stake or whatever, whatever it was yeah. going to be. And what did we get? You know, initially we got exchanges, right? And they're like, hey, actually we are okay. We already, you know, are custodying for you. So we might as well stake for you as well. And then everyone said, oh my gosh, we need to come up with some sort of solution. And we came up with something like Lido, which has basically facilitated delegated proof of stake on something like Ethereum. And what you had there was very good intentions, right? In terms of the designers of the Ethereum protocol, but you were fighting up against human psychology and human interests, um, which is most people want the yield, but they don't want to do the work. And I, I do think when it comes to, you know, when you talk to people who, uh, you know, from Wall Street, they all have a very strong belief that anyone should be able to do, if you can create a contract and make an agreement, you should basically be able to do that thing. So I think something like restaking, whether it's Eigenlayer or some other middleware primitive or whatever it ends up being, this is this is going to happen no matter what. So I, at the end of the day, people are going to do what they're going to do. Um, and I think it's probably just good to highlight some of the risks and try to do it in the smartest way that we possibly can. Ethereum has a tendency to, you know, push a lot of complexity or decisions to the market instead of doing it in protocol. Um, like if you, this is not a perfect technology, but like an in protocol version of Eigenlayer is kind of like Polkadot where you already have, you know, like all these staked dot and then you're, you know, basically loaning it out to these different parachains. Um, and obviously like Ethereum does has a million reasons why they didn't want to do that along with you know, not wanting to do delegate, delegated proof of stake. Um, but, you know, you just have to be wary of like the market, what the market, the market's going to build it then. And it's going to be not, maybe not in your control of like the perfect version that you want it to be. Um, you know, right. We see that with MEV, we see it with liquid staking. Um, and then eventually they come and push back when, when you start to see a winner take all sort of market with, you know, an actor that's out of their control. Um, like I'm sure they would much prefer, you know, Lido to have thousands and thousands of validators at this point, but they, you know, that's just not the way it played out. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I do get kind of like, especially coming from Cosmos, working in there a lot where like building things into the chain is part of the value prop that they, that they have and they lean into it. Um, versus, you know, Ethereum, which is value prop is very, very different. So they make sense. They do these things, but then don't like. You know, get mad at the market. <laughs> like this is what's going to happen. I understand that viewpoint too, though. The difference between Ethereum and Cosmos is that Ethereum is securing hundreds of billions of dollars worth of value. You know, and that's the but that's the that's the pros and cons of it. That's why Cosmos is allowed to do so much in the way of exploration, which is why I think some of the coolest experimentations going on there. But you know, Ethereum has this enormous uh, sort of privilege, but also you know heavy on the shoulder or heavy lies the crown sort of thing because they, they have to be very careful for um for what they put in in the protocol and there was actually a i haven't gotten to reading it yet um otherwise i would have asked your guys opinions about it but mike uh there was there was a uh i'm blanking on his last name uh mike neuter uh wrote a great post about um sort of his his version of how enshrined pbs is going to work um which I think is still a decent ways away, but this was a helpful like, hey, this is how basically I think I think that it should work. Even in trying, like you know, the decision to enshrine 
proposer builder separation was very well, you know, deeply researched and sort of thought out. And they allowed a, a lot of infrastructure to come up like either MEV boost or, yeah. or whatever to, you know, be off chain well, for a while. This is the perfect example of the, the kind of the rational, the rationale behind this approach is, okay, let the market experiment a lot, you know, off chain or say on L2s and, and eventually we'll coalesce around some standards that we feel comfortable enough to bring back into the protocol. Um, yeah. and it's interesting. We'll, we're, we're seeing that we have not seen that with liquid staking, but we have seen it with, with MEV and it'll be interesting to see, you know, which way they go with, with restaking and, and just generally like idea of being able to extend ethereum security um or sell this economic security to other protocols last last question for you guys on on all this the this sort of elephant in the room even on top of something like restaking or some catastrophic bug in a layer two is the fork choice rule right now is heavily dependent on something like usdc right and where usdc withdrawals initiate to and honestly something like lido right so I guess my question to you is the fork choice rule is something that's very, very important. It's very kind of critical to how blockchains are supposed to work, the ability to fork the code. Do you think it's the inevitable destiny for base layers to lose full sovereignty um, as apps take off on their chains and become larger and more significant? Losing full sovereignty, not we haven't seen it yet because what it comes down to is whether or not there's a contentious fork and contentious in between and what i mean there isn't contentious between different factions within within the base layer i mean base layer versus application and that so long as everything is humming along i'd say that that is fine i do think that the apps have um have exerted enough power to be able to dictate which one becomes the canonical chain I, I totally agree. Um, I forget where I saw it, but there's a saw something. It was like fork choice on ETH is a call between like Jeremy uh, Paolo from Tether and Lido, um, which is not you know it's like tongue in cheek, but at the same time it, there's there's an ounce of truth to it. Um, I mean, but it, it's also a choice between like what Brian Armstrong thinks of Coinbase. Yeah, it's it, there it's not it's not just the decentralized applications it's it's the centralized ones as well um and you know which assets they support which ones they don't i remember when we went through the merge you know that was a big question as to whether or not you were going to be able to get that that airdrop token and then coinbase wasn't going to support it and i can't remember which kind of like out there uh poloniex right yeah exactly poloniex supported it right but nobody else did so like you know if you don't have a market for your asset your asset's obviously gonna die it's not gonna be worth anything um, so I, I don't think it's just the dApps, the decentralized applications, but it's it's broadly everybody. Interesting, interesting thing to ponder uh, for sure. So I'm sure we'll we'll sort of fleece this out as uh, maybe one uh, one one question, just as an orthogonal point, and this is something that we talk about at Framework every once in a while. Is like, is there the concept of a protocol being done and like finished, and and frankly not having to go through this type of stuff anymore? You know. Um, obviously the merge was a huge component change for Ethereum that brought about a hard fork that created, you know, ostensibly a new asset. How many more of those probably, you know, less than a handful will have left before you can kind of, in a sense, say that Ethereum is done maybe. Um, but like, is there the concept of a, of a base layer protocol being done 
and therefore being able to say, hey, like we don't have to make these decisions anymore. Now it really is just, you know, there isn't really any contention for contentious conversation because we're not, you know, we're not changing things. Yeah. It, even things like le- my less technical, just like monetary policy, right? Like even if Ethereum's roadmap was like complete at this point, people would still be talking about like, should we burn the MEV, right? Um, and, and to accrue more value to the, to the token itself. Um, and then, yeah, for, so for base layers, it's, it's, you know, it's, you could see maybe like a base layer eventually taking away token, formal token weighted governance. If that's where it started with like, like, you know, Cosmos and Lowe's actually have, you know, traditional token weighting, and then it moves over to some sort of social consensus, which is harder to change. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then at the application layer you know, Lido has talked about ossifying like parts of the protocol, you know, so basically making the contracts completely, completely immutable, but you know, they could do that with critical components of, of their, of their protocol, but they're still going to need to oversee like how deposits are allocated across these different validator sets, right. Um, oversee the fee structure. Um, so yeah, I think there's ways to, you can be completely done and immutable from, you know, maybe a technical standpoint, but there's still some sort of oversight that just puts the periphery economics and other stuff that makes me think probably not. It's more of a hypothetical versus a, like, how do you apply this to existing protocols? I'd say the closest to being there is maybe Ethereum and that's still like, you know, ostensibly years away. Um, but it's, yeah, more of a thought exercise. I have a the uh, response question to you, Michael, do you think companies are ever done? No, because companies are inherently a people uh, conversation. And um, I'd say maybe, well, I guess it depends on how you look at done, right? Um, because people need to show up every day, sell the product, build the product. Um, that is a, a very different um, proposition than having a protocol that exists as an intermediary a technical protocol that exists as an intermediary between validators and and users, um, it, it is it is a very very different you know equation. You could probably look at some companies like I, I was having a conversation. This sort of a funny conversation. I was having a conversation with a friend who is friends with the family that owns the Tabasco company or the company that owns Tabasco products, and they have had flatline revenue has has unchanged since 1990, and it's just like every single year, it's just like has how much revenue it's going to have, you know, like the biggest innovation that they had recently, uh, or, or actually, sorry, in 1990, the biggest revenue source differentiation is they they slightly widened the hole of the bottles that they had. <laughs> so the more Tabasco would come out and that like increased revenue by 10%, you know, like, but that's like, you know, that is the, the type of changes that they're making in the last, you know, 40, 50 years. Um, Maybe that company is kind of done, but, uh, but there's still, you know, a bunch of people that are building, you know, and making the product. And I, I do know that they've come out with new flavors, but it hasn't generally changed too much. Um, but you know, there are companies that you can kind of say are done, but I'd say most companies that we're looking at and thinking about probably not done in the same better protocol could actually be done. Yeah. Well, you could, you could argue like the opposite end of the spectrum is like maybe open source protocols that we use like email protocol or like, you know, like HTTPS, like those are done and they're done because they're non-monetizable, right? The, 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 that's, that's kind of like the whole thing around it. Uh, and they're used, you know, to the point where training it is, un, you know, feasible. Well, 
I mean, HTML5 came out in the 2010s, and that was a that was a pretty pretty. I, I believe so. I mean, I could be wrong with that, but that was a major kind of like web development standard change. Um, SMTP hasn't changed that much. I mean, I, I agree. Those are perfect examples of how like a protocol could very much be done. Um, and and yeah, I agree. The the non monetization element is a major component as to why you can consider those to be done. Um, that being said, if you have a perfectly balanced economic ecosystem, you know, maybe you could have monetization factored into that and still have it be done. I don't know. I think I've thought about this a, a good amount. I know Vance is on the train of definitely if something can be done and then you leave it. Actually, Dan Elter had a pretty good thread today on something about this. And maybe there's a distinction between a protocol and a primitive or something like that. But um, I don't know. I think one of the reasons why equities are you know far and away the best performing asset class is this concept of compounding so once you start to win and drive excess profits and returns you can invest that into the business and then you can if you're good at doing your job you allocate that capital effectively those early wins can over a period of time compound into much larger wins and that's why equity does so well as an asset class i think if you take the concept of a protocol being done and you take humans out of the equations I think that's pretty bearish for token prices, to be honest with you, because I think you lose a lot of that compounding value because here is XYZ thing and it's a protocol and it's done. And, you know, the whole point of crypto and disintermediation is to eliminate rent seeking. So it doesn't seek that much rent, doesn't reinvest or compound those profits. So it's kind of like a low yielding annuity and in that in that instance. And I think if you take that approach, I think you, I don't know. I, I am at this moment in time, I hadn't really thought that much about it, but at this moment in time, I, I'm not inclined to think that way. I mean, the vast majority of economic gains in corporate equities comes from some sort of uh, distribution back to shareholders. Mm. And, and yes, I agree there, you know, there is an element of investing into new adjacent business categories, you know, Apple being able to take their iMac, iPhone, iPod, uh, you know, uh, earnings and, and pump those back into the creation of the iPhone, the iPad, iWatch, everything else um, that they build. But the vast majority of their economic gains for the Apple share itself started when Carl Icahn and Tim Cook had that dinner and, and Carl convinced Tim to start buying back the shares. So I, I do think that they're, you're right in that you want to build the base of economic viability with the businesses that you have within, you know, the the protocol or the company, whatever it may be, but the vast majority of economic returns comes from delivering value back to shareholders from an equity perspective. I agree. There's, but there's the life cycle of a company, right? And I'm sure that it differs. I don't have these numbers off the top of my head. I'm sure it probably differs based on the era of the United States or whatever. But you know, in general, I feel like that life cycle ends up being around for successful companies. You know, anywhere from like 40 to 90 years, something like that. Um, and generally, in sort of the first half, to drastically oversimplify of that company's life cycle, you're building an asset. And then in the second half, you're kind of returning capital to shareholders and harvesting it. So the reason I would push back a little bit strongly, you know, just given that timeline, is that I just don't think we have time in crypto for anything to be done. And frankly, just to call a spade a spade, a lot of the stuff that's like an immutable contract there's a lot of people involved and there's a lot of like BD work that gets done. And like, it's not just like, Hey, we built this contract and tons of stuff flocks to it. There's a lot of like 
stuff that happens behind the scenes that makes that stuff go. It's not like these, you know, you put these contracts out and they just all start doing amazing things. Like there's, there's people behind them. Um, yeah. I think, I think maybe that the, the one nuance or like, like third option is that, you know, at some point the focus becomes building, you know, a company's building products on these protocols. Like yeah. maybe a swap V5, V6, V10 at some point, right? We're already starting to see the majority of like real um, investment going towards the equity company that is trying to, you know, get this protocol's product into the hands of lots more people so that, you know, it becomes very valuable over time. But um, that's one way where you could maybe see the protocol being done, but innovation on top of it, you know, is still in, in earlier stages. 100% agree. Yeah. You know, Uniswap Labs and Uniswap Protocol, perfect example. What do you guys think about, last question for you guys, what do you think about companies that have both a token and equity in the company? Um, it depends. Yeah, it really does. It really does. Because, like, I, uh, I, like, I can see the challenge of, um, you know, even if your goal is to maximize the long-term value of the, of the token, um, you know, not building anything that accrues to the equity company on top basically just leaves you with the option of becoming, um, you know, a, a service provider to the DAO um, longer term. And frankly, like, you know, in the case of Uniswap, if the Uniswap Labs team was, was being paid by the DAO at this point, like, I would say that that is a worse long-term outcome for Uniswap than if they go build something on top that actually make results in like significant, significant 10 to hundred X adoption uh, of people using the protocol. Um, on the other hand, it presents some, you know, unfortunate conflicts of interest uh, where, you know, you don't know, there's no, there's no proving, you know, just how much of the value of uni wallet success trickles down to Uniswap itself. Um, and potentially, you know, maybe they don't want it to yet because that gets them in regulatory hot water. Um, so that's just one example. I think, you know, maybe another one is like Ave where, you know, they've got pretty much the entire, all of the resources focused on the protocol and building, you know, things for the DAO. Um, and Ave Labs is, you know, still like had to go back to the DAO and say, can we get like 16 million bucks for V3? We have like, you know, the, uh, is it BRG or BLG? I can't remember the team, the core protocol maintenance team that's now like a service provider. Right. Um, so I think it's it's complicated, and but to just say like it's a it's a it's probably net bad overall, but like it's not. There's definitely some nuances there where like I I can sympathize with even you know just for the sake of the token building things on top uh, at the company level. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I, I would say. There's a lot of variables that go into this. Number one, what you're building and uh, how, how, like, it, is what you're building something that should be, like, truthfully should be decentralized? If that's the case, uh, it also depends on where you are. Are you based in, you know, in the case of Abe, are you based in Europe? Uh, are you based in, you know, Asia? Are you based in the United States? You know, all of them come with different flavors of kind of like, current best in class way of, of doing you know whatever it is that you're doing i would say typically the way that an investment works is you're putting money uh investors are putting money into a corporate equity 
and that corporate equity can be called labs or it can be called, you know, something. Um, that's where all the employment relationships are. That's where the technology is developed. And then there's also a, a um, equivalent token warrant that happens. And in whatever cases, uh, the token can relate to the network that is developed by the company and the company distributes or transfers that IP of the open source network to a foundation and that foundation proliferates the network. Then that company, whether it's called labs or anything, transitions exactly to what Miles said into a service provider where they're contributing services in addition to other participants or other companies that are also uh, contributing services and getting paid for those services from the decentralized network. And we're now just starting to see what happens if the protocol is you know, generally done or there's a di diversification and, and a decentralization of ownership and contributions to that network. So like it's completely, you know, the proliferation of it is, is complete. Uh, maybe not the protocol is complete, but at least, you know, the labs concept or the originator, the originator of the protocol can take a step back. And that's what Uniswap Labs um, is now doing. So they're, they're now transitioning into a product company that builds on top of the Uniswap protocol in the form of their wallet. And that may be the playbook going forward for a lot of these, a lot of these, you know, companies that produce protocols that then build products on top of those protocols. Um, so it really depends on kind of what you're building, what stage you're at, um, and, and frankly, where you see kind of the long-term incentive model. But, you know, one thing that is just never going to fly is, you know, having a protocol and then doing a company and it, it, you can't have both at the same time because you can't, you get into real big issues with conflict. Um, when the value accrual mechanism is something that gets changed halfway through and that's how, you know, it's tried to be happen to happen a couple of times from what we've seen and never really works. Um, and so you have to make sure that you're aligned for the different stages, um, and with your investors at those stages. Could not agree more. Um, and you know, there is something to be said for building a, you know, product on top of the protocol that allows you to keep funding yourself. Um, because otherwise you become a burden on the DAO. Um, you're right. You like, it's interesting to see just which come, which protocols at this point have actually transitioned to the ops company under like the umbrella of the, the DAO's budget versus which ones are, you know, still, you know, working off of their VC funded runway. Um, and you know, even the, the DAOs that look profitable today may not be like super profitable if you were to actually bring all those costs in. Um, but, you know, like Lido's one that they now have like 70 or 80 heads under the, you know, the budget of the DAO. Um, but there's very few like that. So yeah, I think, I think it'll be interesting. Maybe the last point is like, there are just things that can be executed better if they weren't under the purview of, of formal governance. Um, and so I wonder if there is, a, you know, a hybrid middle ground where like you spin up a company that has, that is, you know, owned in some capacity by the DAO, or at least has ability to directly, you know, um, accrue value from like a, a wallet product built on top, but that wallet team doesn't need to like, you know, go through like a, a governance vote for everything they do. Right. They, and they can go acquire customers more efficiently and et cetera, et cetera. The Lido, I feel like is the example that makes the most sense to me when we're talking about a product being done. And, you know, I, I do also think oftentimes, you know, we're, we've talked about it on this show before, but being in a DAO can feel antithetical to working efficiently. And in this case, I do think the 
ethos and ideal of decentralization and the value proposition of Lido are actually one and the same in this instance. You want something you want something to be like Lido to be completely transparent, a hundred percent, you know, as decentralized as is as is humanly possible. And and you want the surface level of what Lido does and therefore the governance to be very thin. You don't want it to be broad. You probably don't want Lido to be doing a hundred million things and reinvesting in yada yada XYZ. I think you probably want them to be relatively yeah, I, I agree at the end state, but I think it's also, if you were to look back at Lido on day one, if they had tried to be like the, as decentralized as possible, then they wouldn't have been in this position where they're now competing with the exchanges, right? Yeah, I agree with you. You're in the middle stage where they say, okay, we need to do the staking router. We need to do the you know dual governance. This is what's going to eventually let us become a super thin layer, but it still requires like a lot of work today. Um, but I could not agree more that like, you know, end state for them with the biggest possible market share is probably comes with a very thin layer of governance, um, to get people comfortable with their market share. Cool. All right, guys, I think we've got to wrap it up. This was a fun one. 